Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these minutes together now and these words. Thank you that you are good. Help us today to learn more about your perfect love, which casts out all fear. Amen. It was September. It was raining. We were driving home from London. Hazy had been unwell again while we were there. She hadn't been right for a while. We'd ended up at the Portland Hospital for IV antibiotics. And as the rain hammered down on the car, my phone rang. Hello, Alice. It's your doctor, Dr. Raffles, here. I need to come and see you both. I'm leaving London now, and I should be with you by about 10 p.m. I can't tell you over the phone. I need to see you both face to face. So that was the phone call that would change the circumstances of our lives for a very long time. When Dr. Raffles arrived, he asked if I could take him upstairs to Hazy's cot as he needed to feel her tummy. Up in the girls' room, I rolled Hazy over and he nodded as he pressed. Downstairs, he sat us down and very gravely said, I've seen leukemic blasts under the microscope in Hazel's blood. She has an enlarged liver and spleen, which I confirmed just now when I felt her tummy. Her white cell count is 98,000. It should be 8,000. Her bone marrow is dying. I suspect she has leukemia. I need you to wake her up now and take her into hospital, where I've arranged for you to be admitted for tests. What happened that night and into the early hours of the following morning, I can only describe as hell on earth. The instinct to want to donate limbs if it would take away your child's helpless screams and terror is something to which I'm sure many of us can relate. At 2 a.m., it was clear we needed to be transferred to another hospital. So I went in the ambulance with Hazy while Paddy followed behind in his car, tears streaming down his face. I forgot to add... I was eight and a half months pregnant. Ten days and ten nights we were there in that room with no window. Ten days and ten nights of tests and not knowing. Until finally, a knock on the door, two doctors walked in and announced our daughter's diagnosis. On the 5th of October 2015, Hazel was diagnosed with juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia genetic type PTPN11, a cancer of the blood which only affects one in three million children and for which they imagined the only cure was a bone marrow transplant. Double Dutch. Shock. Utter disbelief. And fear. Hard in a vice. Fear. 
How could things have changed so drastically? We had a plan. Relocate from poolside life in Singapore, move to the countryside, get the kids into the local school, walk the dog, and have another bouncing baby. But now we were off-roading into the darkest abyss we'd ever faced, and there was nothing we could do to stop it. At some point, the reality is that we will all experience challenges. Challenges are not elective courses we choose in the university of life. They are simply a part of the national curriculum. These challenges we face can be devastating. They can also be the everyday frustrations that constantly wear us down. I can only imagine the struggles and fears being faced today. There could be life-threatening illness in your family or even in you at the moment. There could be loneliness, especially now when people read Christmas as shorthand for family. There's the crushed career, a ruined relationship, a dashed dream. There's baby blues, weariness, and overwhelmment, financial strife, depression, and the soul-destroying daily grind. All these things, and many more, have the potential to paralyze us and make us feel like we just can't cope. But what I am learning through my story with Hazy is that God has put within all our stories the tools to access freedom within our trials, which helps us cope. Just as Hazy's story, which I'll tell you some bits about, is one of total transformation, there has been a transforming in me and Paddy, which I have found, we have found, only in the midst of our challenges. And so, while I don't pretend that what we have experienced is anything like the scale of hopelessness that bombards our newsreels daily, what we have grappled with is teaching Paddy and me that we have decisions to make during tough times. And these decisions are crucial as they determine not only whether we'll make it through with our faith, relationships, even our sanity still intact, but they also help transform us. And the more we are being transformed, the more we are learning to cope. A few weeks after Hazy's shock diagnosis... I had to take her in to have a Hickman line put in, which is two tubes placed in a main vein leading to the heart. Baby Wilbur had just been born, and he was no more than two weeks old. So after a standard night of feeding at midnight, 2 a.m., 4 a.m., I had to leave the house at 6 a.m. with my newborn baby and my toddler who had leukemia, who was nil by mouth pre-op, get to the hospital, find the paediatric surgical ward somehow for 7 a.m. 
The baby screamed the entire way there. He was not one of those babies that did what it said on the tin. (laughs) I stopped to panic feed him in a lay-by on the motorway, then again in the hospital multi-story car park, then again in a corridor. There was the frantic feed. And all the time, hazy, wretchedly ill, and about to go in for major surgery to permanently fix her with plastic so she could have ease of access for chemotherapy because she had cancer. I couldn't cope. Prior to her diagnosis, she was ill on and off for six months. Obviously, no one knew why yet. At one point, they said she had chickenpox. Of course, it was leukemia, but we didn't know that. I cried the whole way home, clutching my bottle of calamine lotion for the spots, fearful and hopeless, thinking, how on earth am I going to cope with chickenpox? Crazy to think that a matter of weeks later, I would be driving home with a bottle of chemotherapy. But as I'm learning now, the emotion of fear and hopelessness in and of itself is not wrong. It's partnering with it. That's when we're being stitched up. Because fear is the number one tactic the enemy uses to cut us off from usefulness in God's kingdom. When I worry, and I can worry, I become totally self-absorbed, and I take my eyes off what God is doing, feeding the fear and fueling the downward spiral. When it was confirmed that Hazy would need a bone marrow transplant, an international search was launched for a donor to donate their stem cells. We had six months to find one, they said, until it would be too late. Our search took six months. I remember one evening during those long months of waiting, sitting in the kitchen, sobbing. My eight-week-old baby asleep in my lap, Hazy in hospital with Paddy, no donor, a newborn who I was going to have to leave soon when the donor was found, as we'd just learnt that siblings aren't allowed in the room for the entire three-month transplant process. Romy, our then three-year-old, regressing and desperately needy. It all felt hopeless. I couldn't cope. This was not what I planned for my family. God, why is this happening? Well, what I'm coming to see is that making a mental list of why, yes, it gives me a sense of owning my problems, but I don't actually make any progress. Even if we had the answers, it doesn't lessen our pain or suddenly make our challenges surmountable. Why has my friend got dementia? If I knew the answer, would I feel less stricken about it? Why has my son failed his entry exam to our dream school? If I knew the answer, would I suddenly stop lamenting the loss of our perfect plan? No. So asking why doesn't solve things. In fact, a lack of answers only feeds a sense of entitlement. And what generally happens with me is when entitlement grows, it leads to bitterness. 
But Jesus offers another approach I can choose, which is how. How might this situation be used to display God's glory? How might God's greater purposes for good pan out, even in the times we can't cope? When you go through a bone marrow transplant, you live in an isolation room with your parents, and the patient is not allowed out for three months. The room has an antechamber where you have to wash your hands up to your elbows, put on a plastic apron, and a red light flashes to tell you that the air you now stand in is bug-free and you're ready for access. You then proceed through a second door, which gets you into your isolation room. This process is repeated every time you come in and out. Every day and throughout the night, Hazy was wired up to machines, pumping drugs and supplying her with nutrition and fluids. The chemo protocol she had gave her something called veno-occlusive disease, a liver disease, a byproduct, so toxic it can be fatal. The immune system is wiped and she got double pneumonia, twice. The chemo strips the mouth, esophagus and gut and causes membrane breakdown from tongue to bottom, rendering the child unable to eat and on a 24-7 morphine pump. Without any immunity, the medical position is that this type of chemo can kill the cancer, but the chemo can also kill the patient. The new transplanted bone marrow is so immature that the body depends on blood and platelets transfusions daily. Some drugs can affect the retinas in your eyes during transplant. Others can cause hearing impairment. Sickness and vomiting are par for the course. The contents of nappies is black. Every night, you have to bath her, attached to a beeping pump of machines. Every movement of the water agonizes her body and breaks your heart. And every ounce of grit and grace has to be summoned on a minute-to-minute basis by everyone. Okay, I want to ask why, but I'm trying to choose how. How can God's glory be revealed through this? You know the story in John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In those days, blindness was considered punishment for a sin that the blind person or his parents committed. Jesus answers, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In their question, the disciples were asking all of our whys. But in his answer, Jesus changes the why to how. The answer to why doesn't help me deal with my circumstances. But choosing to believe that God's glory can be displayed even in the hopelessness of what was going on with Hazy, gave me hope. This helped me cope. We have yet to realize the thousands of ways Hazy's new life is going to display God's glory. But for Paddy and me, God has worked through something he hates, 
cancer to accomplish an abundance of what he loves, which displays his glory. To come face to face with Jesus' hands and feet in the human form of Hazy's amazing doctors and nurses displays his glory. The love that Hazy's sickness has unlocked in hundreds of hearts displays his glory. We have realigned our priorities and dropped our prejudices, displaying his glory. And people around us have started new spiritual journeys of faith and discovery of the true comfort and strength of Jesus' love, displaying his glory. If we'd chosen to stick with asking why, we'd never see how God has been working through it all, displaying his glory. Having been nil by mouth in transplant for the best part of two months, part of Hazy's recovery involved relearning how to eat again. She was started on a milk-based liquid pumped through her nose tube at a rate of just two mils an hour. We slowly increased it, but she would be sick every increased rate change, and the dietitian would come in and help us revert it to a lower change, lower setting. Slicing and dicing her food intake strategy, I found a huge challenge. I have also been relearning how to digest some biblical truths. One of those truths is 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. I've known in my head perfect love refers to Jesus who casts out our fear, but I still feel fearful whenever I say it. So I'm slicing and dicing it a bit differently now. So perfect love casts out fear. What's perfect love? Well, perfect also means complete. If you say someone is a perfect gentleman, you're saying they are a complete gentleman. So complete love casts out fear. What's complete love? Complete love is a love that extends beyond ourselves to a love that loves others. So to cope in the midst of my fearful, challenging times, I have to find someone to serve and love who's less well-off than me, emotionally, financially, spiritually, or physically, and pour out my love on them. In our isolation room in hospital, no one was allowed in other than the medical team, and the other person was the cleaner. Our cleaner was a man from Nigeria called Hero. He had one of those warm, beaming smiles that lit up our room. And yet, we found out much later, we were the first people who in three years had ever asked his name. Every day at 4pm, Hero would put on his plastic apron, do his washing hands routine, wait for the red light to stop flashing, and enter our room. Over the weeks and months, we found out where he lived in London, what his hobbies were, where his family were from in Africa, and his dreams for his future beyond emptying the bins in hospital. But just as he would look forward to coming into our our room every day to check on Hazy's progress, we would look forward to 4pm when we'd glimpse his approach to our door. 
loving him in the most basic form of just getting to know him and asking him questions. Cast out our fears every day at around 4 p.m. What I actually believe happened was that Jesus physically walked into our room every day at tea time in the human form of hero to melt away our fears. And this all happened in response to a simple act of loving someone. For me now, as a busy mum at home, dishing out fish fingers, changing nappies, and refereeing sibling squirrels, quarrels, my greatest serving opportunity is at home with the children. My greatest fears and challenges are also at home with the children. The number of times I've locked myself in the loo in floods, messaging Paddy, saying how much I can't cope with my rotten, ungrateful children, running rings around me. So in practice, if I can dote on Romy while she's doing her reading, without checking out and checking my social media feed, she might feel a little bit more content, therefore giving me less hassle and reducing my fears that I'm a failing mother. If I can spend five minutes before the children wake up thanking God in the kitchen that his mercies and riches are new every morning for each child, I might feel a tiny bit less frazzled when they're all crying at once because we've run out of crunchy nut cornflakes. And as the slavery abolitionist Christine Keynes, Thought for the Day today, reads, the highest calling we'll ever have is to serve the Lord. And serving cancels fear. I pray I can choose to use perfect love, serving love, to cast out fear in my everyday serving God, turning my love to others, serving as a mother, and watch my fears crumble. After over 60 days in isolation, and having put our daughter through what no physical being should experience on earth, there was another knock on the door. In walked one of our consultants, We chatted about the book Hazy and I were reading on the bed, and then she dropped the bomb. Hazel is relapsing. The leukemia is already coming back. The transplant has failed. Over the coming weeks, they tried to reverse things, but the leukemia was too aggressive. It fought back and once again rattled Hazy's body. The only option was to begin a donor search once again, and try for a second transplant. They call it breaking her to remake her, all over again. Paddy and I covered the walls of our hospital room in verses. One of the verses on the wall, which we read countless times a day, was Mark eleven twenty three. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe you have received it, and it will be yours. 
as to what happened. I did that. It didn't work. Another verse, however, sellotaped the opposite wall in our room was Romans 8:28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So what if I chose to believe that God was using our hospital captivity and dear Hazy's suffering a second time round for our good? When our prayers for Hazy's healing were seemingly denied and she relapsed, God had a plan. A plan for our good, which took us even deeper into anchoring our hope in his truths. A plan for our good to show us again that without him, we won't be able to cope. A plan for our good to fix our relationship with him first and then fix our problem. Not to say that God is in the business of allowing bad things to happen so he can make me get to know him better. Not at all. But if sin entered the world, cancer came with it. And God is in the business of turning what the enemy means for evil to good. So Hazy went on to have a second transplant. A donor was found in Germany after another grueling six months search while keeping her alive with daily transfusions and meds in hospital. A volunteer flew to Germany, picked up the freshly harvested stem cells and flew them back to London that afternoon in their hand luggage. The following morning, they were transfused into Hazy and she survived a second three-month ordeal of isolation in hospital with Paddy and me, just like before. But now, to this day, and with no further relapse, she is a walking, talking miracle. (laughs) Hazy has been transformed. She has had a second chance in life. And we, too, are being transformed, thanks to our German 29-year-old, nameless, soulful donor, Hero. Hero, our cleaner, met us once again every day at 4 p.m. That is, Jesus, the real Hero, opened the door of our room in the form of our dear friend, Hero, the cleaner and met us daily in our suffering, showing us the crucial decisions we can choose to make in a crisis. To choose how instead of why. To choose to love others, to cast out our fear. And to choose to believe God works all things for our good. And so I want to pray with you all now. I want to pray for a new revelation for us all of this Jesus, who is the ultimate hero in all 
our stories, whatever we're facing. And maybe for some people here today or who are watching, this is the first time they've properly met this hero, this Jesus who reaches out this Christmas time and says to us, I have graced your earth to be your hero. I have shed tears over your fears. And what I have done for you on the cross means my blessings are actually greater than a pain-free, normal life, if you'll choose to see it that way. This is our life-saving stem cells, our lifeline. Because as the quote goes from Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist minister in the 1800s, and I want to pray these words now over us all. Pray these words would put a seal over our hearts to remind us Jesus helps us cope when we can't cope, whatever it is that we're facing. This is the quote. I bear my witness that in my pain and affliction, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is big with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven.